Hello everyone and welcome to episode 341 of So You Want To Be A Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm CEO of the Australian Writer Centre where you'll find wonderful writing courses and a supportive writing community. And I'm here with Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, author of the Mapmaker Chronicles and Adaban Cipher series. How are you, Al? I'm, I'm okay. I'm fair to middling. Fair to middling today. Okay, fair, fair, to fair middling. enough. Fair Just enough. One, of the, one of those weeks, which have I you obviously been seeing, have quite This regularly. might make you less fair to middling. Have you been noticing all the lovely reviews that we have been getting um, via Instagram stories and Instagram people who are reading our, our book in the wild? I am, and I have, and they do make my day. I have to say, mm. like every time someone does something like that, I get a little, I have a little bit of a, 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 a just a little frisson of beyond fair to middling. <laughs> oh, that's good. Yeah, everyone keeps do. doing it beyond so if you fair are, to middling. If if you are new to this podcast, we have a book inspired by this podcast called <laughs> "So You Want to Be a Writer," creatively um, titled "So You Want to Be a Writer." Yes, and it has. Everything you need if you want to transition into the world of writing, even while you still have a day job. So it's very practical, step by step, and um, something you can use in in the years to come as well. Uh, so if you want Al to be beyond fair to middling, which would be great. <laughs> which, like, let's face it, this is what we're all aiming for, isn't it? Let's push Al beyond fair to middling. <laughs> we would love it if you could review our book on where – can, where can people review our book, Al? Uh, they can review our book on Goodreads. They can review our book on Amazon. They can review our book anywhere that they buy our book. They mm. can share the share their review on Instagram or social media and tag us just to give me a you know little thrill for the day. Um yeah, mm. well, just um, obviously all reviews help to spread the word about the book and it would be, we would be very, very grateful. All right, so let's move on to the world of writing and publishing. You had a uh, link for us on a template for a newsletter. I do. So thebookdesigner.com is a, a really great uh, website, obviously, you know, buy a book designer. Practical advice to help build better books is the is the um, tagline on the website. Um, and it's uh, by Joel, uh, Joel Friedland, I think, is the guy that actually runs the website. I've had a complete – Joel Friedlander um, mm-hmm. is the guy that runs the website. But there's a post um, up there, a guest post at the moment uh, by a guy called Nate Hoffelder, I think is how mm. you would pronounce that. And it's all about why you would need a template for your newsletter and what to put mm. in it. And I just thought um, it was quite an interesting thing for me. Um, obviously, like I have a template for my newsletter. I know you have a template for yours. Yes. Um, and I just wanted to talk a little bit about the the reason that you would do that in the sense of why would you decide that your newsletter was going to have the same sort of sections every single month yes. um, and how do you decide what those sections are going to be. Um, and I just talk about, you know, the um, I think you have discussed this in the past, you know, the, the freedom that you can find in having restrictions, mm. like your ability to actually um, put a newsletter together can be um, – 
much it's a lot easier to do if you actually have some restraints about what you need to do if you're just sitting there looking at a blank newsletter kind of uh, page every every month it's really hard to know yeah, what it is that you're going to put in this thing whereas mm-hmm. a template where you decide what your sections are going to be um and then you know like uh, fill them out every single month is going to make it so much easier for you would you agree with that like in the sense that um it can be a lot easier to it's like creating the routine to do your writing once Absolutely. you have the routine, the muse knows when when to turn up. Create the template yeah. for your newsletter, um, and it's not that difficult to come up with stuff that's going to be interesting for your readership. Yeah, definitely. In fact, there's two things. Not only I think is it easier if you have a template because then you just follow that template and you then when you're thinking about what content to put in your author newsletter you actually have some kind of framework you're not thinking about a whole bunch of random things you think oh I need something to go in that section I need something to go in that section and it is actually a lot easier for you to create when you do have a template but also from a reader's point of view from the people who are recipients of your newsletter people do like to know what to expect. So it's the same reason why when you watch MasterChef, they follow the same structure of a television mm. show. When mm. you watch, um, you know, a game show or, or whatever, or, or Survivor, they follow the same structure. Even when you watch Law and Order, <laughs> they follow the same structure. When we read books, they follow a three-act structure. So people are used to consuming information in a certain way and um, and they have an expectation of that because especially if it's a, a format that they enjoy, whereas if you chop and change all the time, people just kind of think that you don't really know what's going on. So definitely I think if you haven't already thought of sections in your newsletter, think of it as, you know, if you, if you watch TV like I do, it, it's, 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 it's the sections you have on the Today Show. They're yeah, the same yeah. every single day. So There's an expectation as well. You build an expectation definitely. within your readership of what, what your newsletter is going to be about and it allows them to – because, you know, if you're sending something different every single time, they yeah, people so get confused and they, they'll mm. just not bother to read it. Whereas if they know that you're going to have a section – like mine, for example, has a general um, – obviously there's a header. You want a header that's going to mm. brand your newsletter. Um, it, there's a section where I just sort of talk about – generally what's what's been happening and what's you know anything exciting that I've discovered that I feel that my uh, readership definitely wants to know I have a section for readers because obviously I have uh, readers who subscribe and I also have parents who subscribe there's a lot of uh, like we have a new uh, your kids next read live event coming up next um, next week and so if I, if that was you know within the time frame of my of my um, of my newsletter, I would put that in there to let people know that that's coming. Um, so that would go in the readers section. I have a for writers section, which is uh, links and other interesting things that I've discovered um, that I think will be useful for writers or industry news that I've come up with, or um, you know, the, any sort of special offers on on our you know, so you want to be a writer book or giveaways or whatever. Mm. That would all go in there. Um, and then there's a section at the end which is just. Just for fun, and just so I can show off my dog mostly, um, <laughs> which is you know like my most popular um, you know Instagram post of that particular month, which um, mm. is often procrasty pup, but not oh, always. Yeah. And I can tell mm. you that his nose is very much out of joint when he is not the most loved um, <laughs> photo or image on my Instagram. So you know it's about it's about sort of coming up with 
things that work for you and things that you can easily populate. That's the other thing because what you don't want is your newsletter to become an arduous task that you, you know, you feel like you're climbing a mountain every single month to kind of, you know, get it out there because people can feel that as well in the work, you know, in what you're sending out to them. So just, you know, creating a template, creating some kind of structure to what it is that you're doing on a monthly basis just makes your life so much easier. Definitely. All right. So let's move on to our next link, which is something that you found for us by the writer Nigel Featherstone. Is that right? That's correct. So this is a post, uh, I think it's based on a, an article that he wrote for a um, for one of the publications. I can't remember. I saw it tweeted and, um, and sort of went to have a look at it. It's called Under the Counter or a Flutter in the Dovecote, which I think is mm-hmm. – um, it is the name of the blog and then the actual post itself is called kindling um and the reason that i thought uh, i shared this across our, our social media because it's actually full of really sort of interesting and quite lyrical writing advice mm. um and you know different things that he's collected sort of um, over the years, things he's found, things he's found useful. Um, mm. And then, you know, he's put them together into this post of just, it's just essentially a list of actually quite useful um, writing advice. So, you know, things like a good sentence is clear and precise. It can also have hidden depths. Now, these are the kinds of things that you, you know, you've probably seen them, you've probably heard them, but having them in a, in a, all together in this one post and uh, there is going to be something in this post, I can guarantee there Mm. is going to be something in this post that resonates with you because that's what every single person who's read the post has said. It might only be one thing but you only need one thing. So, um, so, uh, you know, I think a good sentence is clear and precise. It can also have hidden depths is something that resonated with me. The only way to write a story is to put a word down on a page then another, then another until a yeah. sentence appears. And I think, again, it sounds really basic, but it's also something that some di- sometimes on a particular day, that's exactly what you need to read because yes. those are the days where every single word is hard, but you forget that every single word counts as well. And I think yeah. that, um, that that's important. You know, he says today, everyone says, oh my God, there's so many stories out there. You know, there are 7.7, because it used to be there were seven stories, you know, and right. every story was based on one of these seven story archetypes. He yeah. says today there are 7.7 billion stories and 7.7 billion ways of telling them. Because of course, so yes. every story is personal to the person who is telling the story and your voice, your experience, all the things that you bring to a story are going to make exactly the same story different to the person next to you. Also, I really like read more than you write because it mm. confounds me sometimes when I talk to people who say they want to write a novel and I ask them, oh, what kind of books do you enjoy reading? You know, because it kind of gives you an indication of where their head is at. And then they come back and say, oh, I haven't read in years. I'm like, oh, my God, are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> Right. That's going to make it hard for you then, isn't it? Yes. Yes. So definitely read more than you write. Uh, Oh, so true. So true. And And another. Well, I personally like some um, average writing can become good writing after it has been put aside to ferment, which I think is really true. I was writing, um, I put a tweet out yesterday because I was working on on, on a manuscript and um, 
I had realised that the characters in question had basically were living through a day that was at that point at least 56 hours long because mm. of the amount of stuff that had gone on and the various times. This is my first draft, obviously. So, you right. know, people ask you how rough can a rough uh, can a first draft be? And it can be really rough. Like you can have a day that goes for 56 hours because you've got so much. And then what happens is you put that aside and you come back and you realise that the day has been 56 hours long and you work mm. out a different way to construct that, you know, that time frame or that structure. Yes. So, but you're not going to be able to do that on the run because you, it, it, I find timing is one of the things that I always have to look at in the, in the second, in the first edit, um, you know, the second draft, because um, I need to get the story rolling and mm. then I have to work out that in actual fact it needs to take place over four days and not one yep. day. <laughs> yep, yep, so true, so true. So we will put the link in the show notes, of course, which you can find at soyouwanttobeawriter.com.au. Now let's move on to our um, uh, some news. This is very, very exciting. Ooh. So we have a course coming up that I just think is a cracker. I have gone through it all and it is so useful and it's so interesting. So it's called Laugh Out Loud, Crafting Funny Stories for Kids. So we mm -hmm. have a, this wonderful new course in the wings, perfect for writers looking to inject their children's books with humour. You'll find the confidence to write your own funny books, ones that kids, publishers and parents will gleefully gobble up because if you can laugh, you can write humour. It just takes a bit of practice. So the course has been created by Tim Harris, who of course has been on this podcast and he's an award-winning children's author with several Laugh Out Loud series for kids to his name, including Toffle Towers, Mr. Bambuckle's Remarkables and Exploding Endings. So we chatted to him in episode 246. Now, he it's Tim on video and he is full of practical tips and techniques and advice and structure on how to be funny. So this is, it's, yeah, it's like, I don't think of myself as somebody who writes funny stuff, but going through this course, I'm like, I get it. Oh my goodness. Okay. Cause he deconstructs it and shows mm -hmm. you how you can kind of put your funny hat on and, and write funny books for kids. So register your interest in this uproarious course and you'll be the first to know when it is released and that will be soon. So make sure that you do register your interest because, um, uh, you'll, you know, we always reward people who register their interest early. So go to writerscenter.com.au slash laugh to register your interest. Writercenter.com.au slash laugh. Let's move on to our competition this week. We have three copies of Utopia Avenue by David Mitchell. Utopia Avenue might be the most curious British band you've never heard of. Emerging from London's psychedelic scene in 1967, the band created a unique sound with lyrics that captured their turbulent lives, lives and times. They produced only two albums in two years, yet their musical legacy lives on. So this is the story of the band's journey from Soho clubs and dra drafty ballrooms to the promised land of America just when the summer of love was receding into something much darker. So David Mitchell's seven novels include Cloud Atlas, everyone's heard of that, and The Bone Clocks. He has been shortlisted twice for the Booker Prize and he lives in Ireland. So we have three copies of Utopia Avenue to give away. 
uh, just go to writercenter.com.au slash win. Entries close on the 3rd of August. So that's writercenter.com.au slash win. Now, Al. Yes, Val. Are you ready of the word of the week? Am I ready of it or am I ready for it? Oh, did oh, I just say oh? You am, did. You Do you want to try? Awesome. Would you like to? Would you like to <laughs> rewind? Are you ready for the word of the week? Well, I'm really ready now. Like, I'm so ready. <laughs> okay, this is really this is a cracker. I reckon. Okay. Okay. Otaki. Ooh. Otaki. It sounds like a. It sounds like takeaway of some <laughs> kind. I'm just going to go and get myself some otaki. Yeah. <laughs> I'm okay. assuming it's not that. <laughs> it's not takeaway. Autarky. Okay. A-U-T-A-R-K-Y. Autarky. Mm. Mm. So this one was brought to my attention by podcast listener Marinda Young, who heard Senator Penny Wong say it, right? And I've gone back to the where Penny Wong said it. So according to the Macquarie Dictionary, autarky means the condition of self-sufficiency especially economic as applied to a state. Uh-huh. So Penny Wong, Senator Penny Wong, was referenced in an uh, article in The Guardian and she said, wading into the debate on reducing Australia's reliance on overseas supply chains, Wong says, while it's reasonable to safeguard critical sectors and industries, we cannot allow a descent into populism or worst or worse, xenophobia, and we must resist calls for autarky. So resist calls to, you know, kind of be a self-sufficient economy on our own without relying on the rest of the world. I just love the fact that she's used that word. I know. Go Penny. (laughs) Can I also say, just before we move on, because I know that, you know, the word of the week is a highlight for all of us, but just before we move on, I just want to give a big shout out to Marinda Young who brought mm. that to your attention because yes. Marinda does the most amazing stained glass work. I don't know if you've oh. ever seen her Instagram and stuff like that. She has a, um, so you can see it at um, Tudor Rose Glassworks is her website, um, which is trglass.com.au. But she does the most beautiful um, custom design sort of um, stained glass stuff. It's I'm amazing. I'm going to She's check that out. So creative. But anyway, I love so stained thanks. glass. I know. So thanks, Marinda, for the for the uh, word of the week, and also for yes. doing such beautiful work. I love seeing it, you know, in my social feeds. And I know you're going to get so excited by this, Al. Sort of related to the word of the week. I yes. have purchased. Okay. It's very very expensive, by the okay. way. Um, the Longman's Pronunciation Dictionary. Get out! Oh, it's going to be so much fun reading. Is that. it? So it's not even digital. You can't even hear it. You have to read the pronunciation. Yeah, because it's it's spelt out phonetic, phonetically. Oh, okay. In British and American. Okay. Can you can we get a, some video footage of you reading a few <laughs> things out of the Longmans just so that we can see, sure. see how it works? Because I think that could be highly entertaining. Well, I think you have to learn how to read it phonetically as well. I have. I know. No, I haven't got it yet. You've got to go I've and do a uni it. degree in how to read <laughs> phonetically so that you can read your very expensive, expensive dictionary. I like it. All right. So good bedtime reading. I can't wait to share it with you and everyone. Oh, me. 
either. I just honestly, I'm on the edge of my seat. Is everyone on the edge of their seat? I can't wait to hear all about it. Yeah. When I knew okay. it existed, someone told me about it. I was like, oh my god! I went and bought it straight away, even though oh my god, it costs a fortune. Um, all right, let's move on to our writer in residence this week. We, I had a great old chat with Catherine Firkin, who her latest book is Sticks and Stones, which is a ripping crime novel. And uh, Catherine has wanted to write a novel from forever, from when she was um, a little kid, and she has successfully done so. So let's have a chat to Catherine Firkin. Catherine, congratulations on your book. This is so exciting. For those readers who have not yet got a copy of Sticks and Stones, tell us what it's about. Well, Val, it's a police procedural that is set in Melbourne. It basically follows lead detective Emmett Corbin, who is head of missing persons, When we first meet him, he's a little bit bored and and feeling a bit resentful because his unit is so under-resourced and understaffed and he's stuck with these really banal cases which he thinks local stations should be handling themselves. Um, But then he comes across this case of a missing mum. He discovers that she left her two children at a childcare centre and it all looks extremely suspicious and we see him go from one extreme to the other, from being really bored and feeling quite lost to suddenly having his hands full and ending up chasing a serial killer through the streets of Melbourne. Now, what drew you to writing about crime? Well, it's a funny thing. I actually always wanted to write women's fiction. In fact, um, ever since I was a little kid, I knew I wanted to be an author and this was my absolute passion to write women's fiction. I have quite a few failed manuscripts in my drawer still, from attempts I made in my late teens and early 20s. Um, But then in my work as a journo, I got sort of pulled into covering the death and funeral of underworld figure Carl Williams. Mm -hmm. And that really drew me in, that, that whole underworld that's going on, sort of often right in front of our eyes. And I became quite obsessed with trying to understand the mind of a killer And uh, my book really does, I think, take you into the mind of a killer and sort of Mm. understand motivation and behaviour. I think that's um, interesting that you say I really became obsessed with understanding, you know, the mind of a killer. It's not like a normal thing people would want to understand. Um, So how did you go about doing that? Well, I, I ended up, I was initially working as a sports reporter and I sort of said to my boss after I covered particularly the funeral of Carl Williams, that really shocked me because it was in a suburban place He was by all accounts this suburban guy who had this whole secret life going on around him. And I said to my boss, I really want to get more into crime and court reporting. And particularly in court reporting, um, you can apply for documents afterwards that give you a lot more detail even than what you necessarily have heard in court. And I started to do that with quite a few cases and build up almost little case files of my own that I would read through and chat to police about and chat to lawyers about and just try and understand, you know, how did this person get to this point where they became a, a killer? Mm. And so you wanted to write popular women's fiction initially and then you started getting interested in crime. Did you make a conscious decision, I'm going to change the direction of my fiction at some point? I assume so. Well, actually, I'd, I'd actually sort of given up on writing a novel. It was something, you know, as I said, I wanted to do since I was little. It's 
pretty much been my lifelong dream. But I really did have these terrible manuscripts and I didn't need to show them to anyone else. I just knew they were rubbish. Like they truly were rubbish. There's not me being humble. And I sort of came to the realisation that oh, I'm just not meant to be a writer. It's, it's you know, I'm a journo, but I can't creatively write. Um, and the idea for this particular book actually came to me as I was walking along a creek where a lot of the book is set. Mm. And it came in this really strong vision. I know that sounds ridiculous, but... I saw the crime, I saw a body lying there, I even saw police coming and chatting and I raced home and jotted all this down on my computer and the funny thing is the next day I completely forgot about it and I let that scene just sit there for a few years and it was only when I came back and I was cleaning out my, my, yeah, it was only I came back and I cleaned out my old laptop and I started reading this thing I'd written and I thought, wow, this actually is okay, I'm meant to be writing crime. So it all sort of happened quite... (laughs) Yeah, quite strangely. So obviously that was a scene and after that, what did you do to flesh it out into, obviously a a, a novel is much longer than that. So what were the steps that you took next in order to turn it from a scene into a fully fledged novel? Yeah, well, it's funny you say that. I was so naive when I got going and I I had this scene that was, I don't know, maybe a thousand words, maybe 2000 words and I was so excited by it. And I I really naively thought, great, I can just, you know, turn this into a novel. I'll have it done by Christmas. It'll be on the bestseller list by, you know, January. I was such an idiot about the whole thing. And I I had no idea how long this was going to take me. It really, I sort of just wrote a rough draft. And I did that by setting myself a goal of having 400 words a day, which I know is small, but it was something manageable that I could do. Mm. And I got to the end and I was so excited. I took myself out to a fancy restaurant and I printed out all the pages and I hadn't told my husband, so I presented it to him and said, I've written a book and I'm going to send it to publishers. Um, And then I had the horrible shock of rereading it and discovering that, again, I had written absolute rubbish. So, <laughs> um, so can you give me an idea of the timeline? How, you gave yourself 400 words a day. So uh, how? just give me sort of um, a timeline of the entire gestation period from when you started to – so when you rediscovered the scenes – so to speak, and then how long it took you for the first draft and then how, how long it took for the, you know, subsequent drafts before you ended up sending it to a publisher and so on? Uh, the whole process. So when I had the idea, I let it sit for a couple of years. When I rediscovered the scene, mm. um, I did my first draft in about a year and then that was rubbish and then I started rewriting it and that would have taken at least another three years, I think. Wow, before really? I'd, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I did seven full rewrites of this book wow. before I gave it to my agent mm-hmm. um, because I, I, one thing I am good at is is self-evaluation and I, I could read it and go, okay, it's starting to turn into something that I want, but I knew it wasn't quite where it needed to be. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm, I am a perfectionist like a lot of writers, so I just kept redoing it and redoing it and redoing it. So the whole process has been, yeah, years in the making. Mm, mm. Now, it's a police procedural and with that there are so many things that you need to get right in order for it to be authentic and so that people don't go, oh, that doesn't happen. But also you need to, as you say, understand the criminal mind or the the 
murderers, mind. So what research did you do to make sure you got all the information you needed to make it real? So you are exactly right. It took a huge amount of research and insider knowledge to make this book happen. And I very naively thought that just being a journalist meant that I would have enough sort of intel on how police operate on a day-to-day basis. But I quickly realised as soon as I got started that I was going to need a lot more help. Luckily, I had met quite a few police and detectives on the job and I reached out to quite a few and you know, organised coffees and dinners and things like that and Mm. pretty much begged and pleaded to get sort of a bit of help. Mm -hmm. Um, Quite a few were a bit reluctant, as you would understand, but I did manage to find a couple of really good contacts who were so wonderful. They emailed me back and forwards whenever I'd say, "What, what about this? What would you do in this situation? How would you handle this? They were just fantastic. I was very lucky. Now, you said that you aimed for 400 words a day, which is, and it's a nice sort of compact amount because it's manageable. So tell us on a practical level how you achieved that. Did you set aside a particular time of day? Did you just fit around whatever? How did it work? Well, that was for my first First draft. draft, Yeah, I set the goal of 400 words a day. Um, I, being a journalist, as I'm sure you would know, my days are not the same and I often work weekends. I often work overnights. It depends what's happening with the news. So I can never really say I'm always going to write between, you know, nine and 12 or something. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, that's also why I kept the amount so small because I figured I could squeeze it in. Even if I got home really late after a long day, I can always bash out 400 words, but I have to say, I, stopped using a word count from my second draft onwards because it really didn't work for me either as a motivator or for the quality of writing. I found that I would just get to the word count, but I didn't necessarily, the quality wasn't necessarily there. So I've changed my methods quite considerably. Right. So did you know what was going to happen? Like essentially, were you a plotter or a pantser? Oh, definitely a pantser. Really? Once I had, yeah, once I had the first scene, everyone's surprised, particularly when you've read my book, because it there's a lot going on. There's lots of different narratives and everything has to kind of obviously join together. Yes. Um, but I really, I've tried, I've tried sitting down and planning. And I actually just finished my second manuscript for my second novel. And I tried to plot that and I just couldn't. And I had to throw the plot out the window and again, just go by gut. I'm, I'm a big mm. believer in letting my characters tell me where they want to go and what they want to do. And I'm also a big believer in writing through things. And I just find when I just keep writing, it kind of, it works itself out. And so when you got to your second, third and up to the seventh draft before you even sent it to a publisher, how you say that you are good at self-evaluation, but what sort of framework did you apply or how did you, how were you able to put on that self-analyzing kind of hat in order to look at it objectively? Um, well, I, I think I'm, I'm naturally very critical, not in a bad way. I'm naturally an optimist, but I'm naturally quite critical. I'm a very good editor at work. I can always edit other people's work. And I really just took it as this isn't my own writing. I'm reading this as an outsider. Mm. The moment I was bored, the moment I was a bit confused, any little inkling, and you, you do know in yourself when you're reading something and you start to go, ooh, and a lot of the times the natural instinct is just to kind of ignore it. But if you stop and think, no, that's 
that's not really good enough and you cut it. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, also I am a ruthless editor. I love nothing more than cutting paragraphs out of my work. And I don't, <laughs> I do, I, I don't save things. I, I'm not a believer. I literally will just wipe a page and delete it and I don't oh save it. I don't, mm. I'm just having a stress attack just hearing that. Yeah, I, I, I love the idea of just, no, nope, that's not good enough, get rid of it, start again. Um, yeah, I know a lot of people don't, but I'm I'm really ruthless and I think that's why I was able to get it to a point without too much assistance. Mm. So a book of this nature does need, as we've already mentioned, um, considerable, considerable amount of research. Did you do all the research first and then start writing in a flow or did you research as the need came up? Uh, no, I definitely researched as the need came up. I think you can fall into a trap if you sort of think you have to research everything beforehand, but you really just end up putting up during the putting off during the work. It's sort of almost mm-hmm. like another procrastination trip. Um, and also, again, because I was writing on gut and letting my characters tell me quite often, I didn't know quite where we were going with particular things. And I would get to points and then go, oh, I need to ask someone what would they do here or look through some of my files from other cases or mm. things like that. So it, I don't know, it works for me too. So when you say you let your characters kind of tell you and let your characters drive the story as opposed to plotting it out, how well do you know your characters at the outset or are you actually forming them as you write the story? I'm so glad you asked that question because one of my favourite things to do and one of my I guess, tips for anyone who's trying to start writing. Before I write anything of the actual novel, I always have a strong idea of who my main characters are going to be. And I spend a lot of time just jotting down thoughts about them. It doesn't necessarily have to be beautiful writing in what I'm doing here, but I'll just start, you know, rambling, almost like diary entries for someone. I I start to think what they might have done last year, what their favourite board game is, what they, what sports team they follow. And I, I start to just create a little bit of a picture about them in my head. Mm. And only when I really feel like, okay, I know who these people are, then we get going. And I think that's why I kind of trust them. I know that sounds really silly, but mm-hmm. I trust that they're going to lead me through the story. And what do you think was the most challenging thing about writing this book? Oh, definitely just getting my bum in the seat and doing the work. And I think that would be the same for everybody listening. Just, Mm. you know, turning up day after day, putting in the work, particularly when it's your debut and you really don't know, is this ever going to see the light of day? I mean, I had big goals for this. I'm not going to lie. I wasn't just writing for the fun of it. I, I really wanted this to be a published work. I had a goal from the outset I in fact had labeled my document with the name of the publisher that I wanted which turned out so I'm lucky I'd called it penguin in my um (laughs) as the file name and I so I yeah I had this sort of one track mindset the whole way through that I am going to work on this no matter what until it gets published but it is one thing to say that and another thing to sit down and do it day after day after day I'm curious to know on a practical level Did you write in Word or Scrivener or, you know, were you writing on devices because you were out, uh, you know, uh, being a journo and needed to write on an iPad or or something or did you dedicate it to a particular computer? Like what did you actually record it on? 
I just use Word and I just use my laptop and I always have my laptop with me when I go out working anyway. And there were quite a few times um, I'm in the car with my cameraman driving to a story and I have my laptop on my lap and I'd just be tapping away. I sort of took whatever time I could to get it done. Um, But I'm not a real tech person. I don't even like the sound of Scrivener because my brain just, (laughs) (laughs) I haven't even looked at it. I don't want to. Um, I'm like, I know I'm not that old, but I don't like technology. I struggle enough with basics. I just, yeah, that's why I'm, that's why I write. I'm not good at anything else. <laughs> All right. So when you are writing, um, sort of fairly dark scenes or gruesome scenes from time to time, that sort of thing has to be described well for the reader and you've done that successfully. But does that mean those sorts of scenes are playing around in your head on a regular basis so that you can write them because, you know, that's essential? Um, And what does that do to your psyche? Yeah, well, that's probably a really good question and I probably need to see someone about this, but... (laughs) You're right. Like that, there are those things in my head, and I think it's. I have covered a lot of court cases, and I've covered a lot of very gruesome court cases. There's one that stands out in my mind, which was uh, in 2014. There was the murder of a woman called Renee Lau in Melbourne, and the details of that case and the evidence photos we saw in court, I will never get out of my mind. And I think in some ways, it was almost a little cathartic to put these thoughts down on paper. And again, try to make sense of how people end up in these situations. There's never, there's never um, obviously an excuse for it. It's never, it's never actually that pleasant imagining the crime. But I do get a lot of satisfaction out of working out the motivation and behaviour, and also treating it a bit like a puzzle. And then I sort of have to work out how I can get all the pieces to fit together. Mm. For a, a, a crime book, you need to have that element of suspense and mystery. What did you do to build that in to make sure you kept the reader turning the page? Yeah, well, I really did want my book to be, oh, I know it's a cliche, but a page turner. I did want it to be a fast-paced read. A lot of the feedback I've got from people so far is that it's almost like a TV series, which I like mm. because that means that it's lots, you know, lots going on and shifts in perspective and things. And um, it means it might be a TV series. <laughs> <laughs> cross my fingers, yes. Mm. Um, but I was very, very... It was also quite natural, I have to say, but I ended every chapter with a definite sort of, I won't say cliffhanger, but that feeling of, oh, something's about to happen. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I've heard you talking on your podcast about, you know, not starting at the start, but sort of starting in the middle of the action. I also would say the same is true for the end of these sort of chapters, for these type of books. I always tried to end almost in the middle of the action so that you knew there's more to come. Now, you're currently... Um, at the moment in Melbourne because you're here to launch the book, but you usually are based in New York. Tell us what you normally do in New York. Yeah, well, I uh, as of last year, I went over to New York and started working with CBS. Um, one of my big roles as a journo there is I've actually started working on 48 Hours, which is a true crime show, and it is right up my alley because, mm. I, again, I get more detail and more insight into some of these crimes and as much as I think Melbourne might be bad for crimes, when you go to the States, you see a whole nother level of crime. Um, 
<laughs> yeah. And the day to day work, you know, I do a lot of other stuff as well. I've done a lot of politics and general breaking news. But it, yeah, I have to say, working on 48 hours behind the scenes and with some of the most experienced people like Erin Moriarty and things, um, it has just been a dream. So this book is very Melbourne-y and Melbourne, you know, with the whole underbelly um, uh, series and, and, and books, it's, it's it, yeah, there's lots of crime happening in Melbourne. Does that mean your second manuscript, your second novel is set in New York? No, it's not. So the second one is, um, and I guess I'm, I'm trying to make a series out of this, so the second one continues where we leave off. Um, it's actually set in Blairgowrie, which is a coastal town, uh, about an hour and a half drive from Melbourne. But same detectives, they head out there for the day and do what they need to do and come back. Mm. Um, I keep getting a lot of pressure to try and consider writing for the States. But I will say one thing. I, I do love Australian fiction that is Australian, mm. whether that's outback or whether that's, as mine is, quite urban um, I think there is a lot of pressure to write internationally also because you might be considering international book deals, but I would love to see people buck that trend a little bit and try to keep things Australian also because then we're potentially giving Australian actors jobs in TV and all the rest of it. So I, I hope I will stay writing uh, mm. with things set in Australia. Unless they do things like with Big Little Lies, which was set on the northern beaches of Sydney, but the television show is set in Monterey, California. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, <clears throat> so have you finished the second manuscript? I have just finished it. I haven't uh, sent it to Penguin yet. I'm sort of having a bit of a play with it still, but it is it is all done. It's pretty much good to go. So with that, because that's it's a different experience when you write the second novel because your first one took years, literally, because, you know, you had to find it on your computer again and then you took several three years to write the first draft and then and, and so on. So I imagine that your second novel was a much shorter, much more compact time period. Can you just talk us through the timeline of when you got the idea for that and how long for your first draft? Yeah, well, I started writing this pretty much oh, about 18 months ago. The lead up to this book getting published was quite long. So pretty much once I signed the deal with Penguin for Sticks and Stones, I started writing the next one. So it's been um, between 12 to 18 months of solid work. Um, I already had the idea in my head. In fact, I have about four books sort of started in my head. Great. So it wasn't hard for me to think, what am I going to do next? It was just more hard again to get myself going and go through the process and in a way it was harder because I knew how hard it was going to be if that makes sense I just knew that long hours it involved mm. and there's so much more you can have the best idea in the world but if you don't put in the work it's not going to happen so I sort of had to psych myself up and do it my actual writing method has changed quite a bit in terms of as I said I don't use a word count anymore I, I have a timer on my phone that I use and I set it, yeah, I set it for one hour, 33 seconds every time. I'm, I'm clearly a bit type A, but um, <laughs> I, I'm, I, I really like that's what works best for me. I set the timer and I don't let myself move or think about anything else or distract myself for that hour. And I find that my quality of my writing is a lot better because I'm not worrying about what I'm actually getting out in terms of words, but I'm just focused on it for that time. 
So how many words do you think you achieve on average during that period? Oh, on average, I couldn't tell you. You know, sometimes I can walk away and have done 2,000 words and I'm really oh. proud of myself. Sometimes I've done three words because all I've done is cut paragraphs and fix things that I've already written. I, I really edit as I go as well. I'm a massive editor as I go. Really? And if some, yeah, if something's bothering me back in Chapter 1, I cannot move forward until I go and fix it. I know I'm breaking all the rules, so I'm probably not being very helpful. <laughs> no, no, um, that's it's whatever works for you, absolutely. So when you live with a book for as long as you did for the first manuscript, for, the, for, for Sticks and Stones, when you live with that in your head for so long, your first draft, your seven drafts, you know, over years, when you finally finish, do you feel a bit, what do I do now, like a bit bereft? Um, I, uh, a little bit, I, not really, to be honest. I just knew because my goal was always to establish myself as an author, not just to get one book out. Mm. Uh, for me, it just felt like this is the start of the journey. I, I've heard you talk about it on previous podcasts, but I really do think it's important you have a, a goal in mind. And mine was always that this was the start of a journey, not I've just got to get this one book in me out. Mm it was always, this is the start. So really once it was done, it was more just, okay, now I've got so much more work to do. <laughs> now you said before we started recording that this podcast got you through drafts two and three. <laughs> How did that happen? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, it's a lonely thing when you're starting out and all your insecurities and everything else play up because you really don't know, am I ever going to get this to see the light of day? And particularly because I had already quite a few failed manuscripts that I knew were terrible. I was going through a patch, oh, I don't know if it was my second or third draft, where I was really questioning if this was the right thing for me to be spending so much time and energy on. Mm. And I, I discovered your podcast somewhere in there and it was just a little bit of light. I used to take the dog and put the podcast on and go for a walk and I loved hearing everyone's stories about the different ways that they found publication and they got through. And the thing that really struck me was that everyone seems to have a different path to getting there. Mm. which made me realise that maybe mine is not wrong. It's just mm. taking a bit longer than what I had hoped. Now, I just want to circle back to something you said about when you did finish that first draft, you then said to your husband, because you hadn't told him, hey, I've written a book. Are you serious? You hadn't told him? You yeah, I, had... I didn't hear that right, did I? No, I hadn't told him. No, How I'm... can you not tell him? What did he think you were doing? <laughs> well, that, that's exactly the first thing he said to me was, oh, that's what you've been doing in the study all this time. Um, yeah, no, I'm a big believer when you have a big goal of putting your head down and quietly doing the work and not announcing yeah. it to the world because yeah. I do think sometimes, I mean, I'm lucky, John's extremely supportive, but sometimes if you tell too many people, you can let all their doubts and their concerns and their ideas get in your head and you sometimes need to first do the work and then show people. Um, that is so true, actually. <laughs> yeah, but it was, it was, he, he was shocked. He was it's shocked. kind of hilarious. Like, <laughs> is that what you've been doing? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So now that you've, you're just in the final throes of your second manuscript, um, when are you going to start on your third? Well, the plan is once I'm happy with this second manuscript and I send it away, the plan is to get started on the third. I've already sort of written out the opening, what I think will be the opening scene of the third. Um, but then again, I'll probably take a bit of time just to start thinking about the characters again, like I like to do and, 
and um, I'll definitely take the dog for a few walks before I get completely <laughs> stuck into it because he's furious with me at the moment. <laughs> okay. And um, finally, what's your advice to aspiring writers who hope to your, – your top three tips for aspiring writers? Yeah, well, my first one is treat your writing as work. So make it a priority, not a hobby. Mm. I think it is so important to understand at the outset that if you want this to happen – the amount of work and time that you think it's going to take, you pretty much need to quadruple that. And the only way you're going to get to where you want to get, if we're talking about a novel and if we're talking about people who want to be published, is to take it seriously, make a commitment to yourself. Even if it's 10 minutes a day, quite seriously, you can do a lot in 10 minutes a day, but make a commitment that every day, 10 minutes, I'm going to put in the work, I'm going to do this, I don't care what else is going on in my life. Treat it as a job and you will be amazed you will get it done. Great. Really good. Um, was that three? That was one. Sorry. <laughs> okay. What are your other two? Um, my second is it doesn't have to be fun. I see this on your Facebook page, your podcast Facebook group quite often. People sort of comment that, or oh, if you're not enjoying it, you shouldn't do it. Or this, and, and I understand people mean well, but my big comment to that would be that, you know, I was going through my second and third draft, hating myself, hating life, hating my writing. And I just pushed through because I had made that commitment to myself to get it done. It doesn't always have to be fun and it's not always going to be fun. And again, if you're treating it as a job, there are going to be days you're going to have to drag yourself to the desk and get it done. Mm. Okay. And your third one? Um, the third one I would say, I don't know if it's so much a tip, just general <laughs> advice is there's only one thing that is going to stop you from getting your book completed and getting it published. And that is procrastination. Yep. You really need to, again, make that commitment and decide for whatever amount of time, make it tiny to start that you are going to be there every single day. It's my biggest tip is just day after day, get the work done. And I promise if you're listening to this podcast, you will you will absolutely get to where you want to get because there is no skill that can't be learnt from a course. Mm. There's, you know, no amount of talent or ability that you can't actually practice or learn yourself. It's mm. purely are you actually going to get the words on the page? Well, congratulations on pushing through. Congratulations on beating procrastination and congratulations <laughs> on your new book, Sticks and Stones, everyone, by Catherine Firkin. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Valerie. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre and our course, Novel Writing Essentials. Whether you've already started your opening chapters or just have a story idea, this eight-week online course will help you shape the beginning of your novel through weekly lessons and workshopping in a supportive environment with your very own tutor. Here's what Ingrid Alexandra says. What prompted me to take the course was that ultimately, like my ultimate goal was to be published and I knew from feedback that I could write that I was on the right track, but I couldn't seem to get past a certain point with, with publishers. So I decided to, to take a course and the Australian Writers' Centre has some very reputable courses and some authors have definitely come out the other side with publishing deals and so that was obviously very encouraging. Definitely one of the most useful things I got out of the course was uh, meeting other authors and being able to brainstorm, being able to network and because writing can be quite an isolating career. So finding other like-minded people was pretty amazing. I learned to reflect on my work 
critically, it's had a positive impact because it's basically it's changed the way that I that I approach writing and I definitely wouldn't be as far along as I am in my publishing career. Ultimately, I think writing is a craft, it can be taught. Some people might be lucky enough to be born with a, a natural gift, but like anything, like any ability, you need to, to hone it and to work on it to perfect it. And I'm now pleased to say I'm a published author. I highly recommend taking a course at the Australian Writers' Centre, no matter what stage of uh, your career you're at. Whether you just want to get that book finished that's been sitting there for ages, that you've been working on for years, or whether your ultimate goal is to get published. Very helpful for me, as you can see, by the outcome. To get your manuscript off to the best possible start, go to writerscentre.com.au slash novel essentials. All right, there you go, Catherine Firkin. Always great to hear from lots of different authors at different stages. So really appreciate Catherine taking the time to do that. So Al, what are you doing in the coming week? Well, I'm, I'm, what am I doing? I'm writing, you know, the problematic thing that we were talking about before with the 56 hour day. I'm doing that. I am working on publicity stuff for the Firestar, which is you know, yes, and people can, people can pre-order the Five yes, Star, can't they? It's, it's available for pre-order. Please pre-order. I would love how, it. How does pre-ordered. one pre-order? Uh, well, you go to your favourite online uh, site um, and I can also put a link in the show notes to uh, to the official book site, which gives links to many various different sites. Mm. Um, and you can um, click the pre-order button and the copies will be sent to you as soon as they are available uh, to the to that particular online bookseller. Um, and of course, the publication date is the first of September. So, why do I care about pre-orders, Val? Let's talk about that for a yes. moment as, right, as authors, because mm. I think it's important. So, pre-orders um, help me as an author a great deal because what they do is they show booksellers um, and publish and my publisher that there is you know demand for the book before the book even comes out so it allows um, the publisher to then also look at you know the the print runs and things like that that they do for the book um, and then it also in that first week of publication when the book comes out it allows you know those sales are counted in that first week of publication they're not counted now they they're all counted on the first day of publication. Mm. And it just means that, you know, the book looks really, really good as far as first day sales and, you know, might even like pop me up onto a bestseller list or something. So, you know, it's it's one of those things. It's um it's a it's a valuable thing in the in the lead up to the book uh, to have the pre-orders available, to have them out there. It's one of the reasons that pre-orders are there. And, you know, obviously, you know, as my dear as my dear friends and audience members, uh, it would be really great if um, you know if if I've helped you along the way somewhere with with all the things that we talk about. If maybe you'd be willing to do that, that would be brilliant. Awesome! So do pre-order. Uh, okay, so this brings us to the end of this week's episode. Where do we find you online now? You'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You'll find me on Facebook and. Uh, where am I? Facebook and Instagram. <laughs> if you would also like to see Procrasty Pops lovely photos and help him get to be the most popular uh, post each month, uh, you'll see find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer, and you'll find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate. And you, Val, where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. Of course, you'll find all of the show notes at so you want to be a writer.com.au. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. 
Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentercomau slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentercomau slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more. 